Hello, this is Missouri Speaks Social Work, a podcast that explores what it's like to be a social worker in the show me state. I'm your host, Aaron Crossley, and I'm a social worker in Missouri. In this episode, we will explore social work and politics. Our profession's code of ethics declares that social workers should engage in social and political action that seeks to ensure that all people have equal access to the resources, employment, services, and opportunities they require to meet their basic human needs and to develop fully. In fact, the word political is mentioned nine times in our code of ethics. Fair warning, you will hear me fan-personing a lot in this episode because I get to talk to two of my favorite people, certainly two of my favorite social workers in the world. The Honorable Susan Ruiz, who represents the 23rd House District in the Kansas Legislature, and the Honorable Carrie Ingle, who represents the 35th House District here in the Missouri Legislature, will both be joining us in this episode today. They both have extensive experience in the clinical practice of social work here in Missouri, and I think you're going to be impressed with how they have transferred that knowledge of micro practice into macro practice through politics. Before we roll tape, I want to have a moment of full disclosure. This is a very informal conversation because I consider Representative Ruiz and Representative Ingle friends. Representative Ruiz was my supervisor at Truman Medical Center's Behavioral Health in Kansas City when I first started working there. And Susan is the reason why I went back to school and got my MSW and became a social worker. She is my social work mom. And Representative Ingle represents my hometown of Lee Summit. And we generally have the same friends, volunteer at the same events, and run in the same circles. Again, full disclosure, I donated both time and finances to each of their campaigns because I firmly believe that we need more social workers in government and other halls of power because we know as social workers how to apply knowledge across systems from what we learn in practicing one-on-one in a clinical setting to how it applies to a community and, and systems level interventions for the betterment of society. So with that, let's jump in. I think the first question I want to ask you is what is your favorite uh, Bernie Sanders with mittens meme? Mine has been so far is um, Dorothy looking out the window of of the Wizard of Oz and Bernie's flying. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Across the window. Yeah, I think right now that's my favorite. That's awesome. I've loved all of them. Um, I'm partial to the, all the Golden Girls ones, though. Absolutely. Yeah. They yeah, get how, me every time. How could you not be? How could you not? Be? I saw one where he was turned into a caterpillar recently. I mean, now now he's he's reflecting uh, yeah. in, into things. And so I think that, that that is great. If you were to be captured on camera uh, at somebody's inauguration, what you know, Bernie has mittens. What would you be captured in? What would be your memeable moment? Your memeable attire? I would probably have a hoodie on. 
uh, and I'd either have a cat or a dog or both in my lap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you would. Insanely large sunglasses for sure. Yes, I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> so something that we really want to hear when we have people on this podcast, um, no matter what the angle is, no matter what the theme for the podcast is, um, we want to hear how did you become a so social worker? So Susan, what, what's your social work coming of age story? Wow. Um, you know, um, I, I know Aaron's heard this story before about my dad and, and his influence in my life. Uh, he was a, a immigrant from Mexico uh, as a young man and began working for the Southern Pacific Railroad and um, in Houston, Texas, where I was born. Um, and he took his, um, he became a citizen. He learned English, became a citizen while working for the railroad. And he, um, he took his citizenship very, very seriously and imparted that on all of us. And, and I took in a lot of it because I was the youngest one. And so I was the last one leaving the house. And so I, I hung out with him probably the longest than any of my siblings did. And, and um, you know, just the, having the, the ability to vote, having, having the right to vote was uh, something that he cherished. And, and um, and the second thing would be to have respeto, which means you have respect. You have to show respect to everyone, not just you know people who are older than you when you were, when I was a kid, but you just show human respect from one human to another. And um, and I remember you know when you'd have open house um, at um, at school, and my parents always went to those dang meetings, and you know like oh my god. Uh, but my father's first questions to every one of my teachers is always, does she respect, does she show respect, not just to you, but to every, anyone else in this classroom. That was, you know, that came first before wanting to know what the grades look like, you know, <laughs> you have to show respect. Um, and because I grew up in that kind of an environment at home, and my parents were very much about um, being in the community and trying to help out as much. My dad formed Escuelitas, little schools in, at our church, our Catholic church is our uh, parish church. And he helped other people learn how to become a citizen. And, and, and uh, uh, I'm in imagining he's probably had somebody there to help them learn how to read. Dad only had a third grade education, but you would never know it if you ever had conversations with him. Uh, he's very well read. Um, but, and then much later on after he retired and he worked for Sun Pacific for 50 years. And so later on when he retired, he became a community organizer, um, out of our parish. And, and so because I hung out with him all the time and hung out with my mom, you know, there's, you just pick up on that and, and knowing, you know, that we are to be of service to, to other people. Um, and, um, Social work really wasn't my first uh, love. Theology actually was my first love. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with the theology degree. But other people saw in me that I, I seemed to be um, attracted to or people would are attracted to me that needed help in some kind of a, in some kind of a service need. And, and so I was introduced to uh, when I went to Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, Texas, 
I was introduced to the Dean of Social Work there and I was just said, why don't you just hang out with her and just talk with her and stuff. And so anyway, I that started my my journey into social work and um, um, I I just I, I was I was really blessed and lucky to have had really good practicums and um, that really exposed me to different areas of social work. So um, the one thing that I really liked uh, um, that I, I'm really grateful for is having more of a generalist um, um, background in social work versus having to, you know, have to go to one through one kind of uh, avenue. Um, and I think that's a really huge advantage. Um, 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 but it, it did allow me to, to experience so many different areas of, of social work. Um, but dad's, sorry, there was a cat fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but my dad, um, my dad's voice is always in my head about politics and how, you know, you need to make, make sure you vote. Even when I left home, dad would call me and say, don't forget to go vote. You know, <laughs> um, we are living in two different states and, and. And um, you know, just um, just knowing that the power of the vote, and when you vote, you can change things. So if you don't like the way the political uh, uh, arena is going, or if there's a certain representative, senator, mayor, whoever, isn't going, isn't doing the best for the people, the vote has the ability to change that. So. Um, this is where it just really in my life, I, the two intersected all the time. Yeah. I wonder if you could, uh, before we move on to Carrie, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your, how you use that generalist training. Uh, what is, what was your practice pre-politics? Um, I still, in my uh, practicum, I actually was in, uh, the, um, Bear County, um, jail detention center in San Antonio. And it's, it's one of those jails, you know, back when I was in school, it was one of those jails that it was, uh, it wasn't the most safe place to be. But was an interesting thing about that is that the inmates there all got together and protested. Uh, they, um, I don't remember how they protested, but they made, they just got together and they protested the fact that there were no social services being being offered there at all. Wow. And there was a lot of mental health issues and plus substance abuse issues that people were struggling with. Uh, and it was because of that, that the, the uh, Warden School of Social Work where I went to um, at Our Lady of the Lake University, they, uh, they approached them to offer a practicum site there. And, and there was a woman who stepped up and said, I'll do it. And so she started a practicum site there. She started the whole social work uh, department there at the, at the jail and then brought in <clears throat> students, uh, both in the bachelor's and in the master's level to, to, to do practicum. So that, uh, that was, that was uh, one of the best practicums I've ever had. The second one was um, with a professor who was also running uh, one of the few um, agencies that also uh, carried a clinic with it. And so um, on the west side of San Antonio was regarded as the most, the, the poorest side of, of San Antonio. And Our Lady of the Lake University is right there, practically in the middle of the west side of San Antonio. And so there was a lot of services that were trying to be started in, the, in that community. But this professor started, um, um, it, pretty much there, I mean, mental health services. So it's therapy, group therapy, 
you know, family counseling, but also ran clinics in a couple in some of the schools. And and he did community organizing. So there were only two people he would allow practicums for through his clinic. I happened to be one of them and, and I was really happy about that because I then I got uh, more experience in administration. Mm. You know, and then again, along with community organizing and doing more work within the community. Um, I wanted, when I graduated, I wanted it out of Texas. Um, I, it's too hot. In Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I never experienced the, sea, the, the changing of the season. So I thought, you know, let me move somewhere where I could experience that. I didn't want the bitter cold like in New York. And so well, what about middle America? <clears throat> and back then in the early 90s, there was no internet that you could go look for jobs. You so uh, NASW put out a big old paper um, uh, that listed jobs on it, and so I started going through jobs and looking around, and had a friend who was willing to to also move, and I got an interview at a community mental health center in Kansas, which is at the guidance center, which covers Leavenworth, Atchison, and Jefferson counties. And it's a community mental health center and, and they hired me uh, to work there. And I did crisis services there. And, and that was another area that I really liked. It was just all the crisis work. And so I was hired there and I, I stayed. I stayed in, in Kansas. Uh, in the nineties, Kansas was way in the forefront of using evidence-based practices and especially with with people with a severe mental illness. And that's that's where my my love is is working with folks that, you know, that are really the probably the most vulnerable in our in our in our society, you know, regarding you know, people with mental health. And um, but that's where I stayed, you know, and then at some point I came over to can you remember the year anymore? 2005, I think it was, uh, to Truman Medical Center, which again, it was like another community mental mental health center, but attached to a hospital and had the opportunity to work with uh, the homeless population there. And, you know, and, and Aaron can attest, we had a, we had a really awesome team there. I, I very much, um, I missed that work. And so it's nice that I can work now at the hospital at Advent Health and they're inpatient because at least I can continue to work with people with mental illnesses. And it helps to kind of keep me grounded a little bit. That's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I I think it's, you know, social work, we promote diversity. I think it's interesting you use social work to move somewhere with the diversity of seasons. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Carrie, I wonder if you could share your social work coming of age. How did you become a social worker? What's your why? Oh, wow. So um, I kind of stumbled into social work. Um, I've had an interesting journey, like I'm sure most of us have. Um, I went into undergrad, into college um, in Oklahoma, where I'm originally kind of from. I'm a military brat, so I've lived a lot of places, but primarily Oklahoma, and um, went to undergrad on a music theater scholarship, and so, um, but was pretty sure that I was never going to want to move to New York City, and, um, and really kind of fight that particular fight, but it was something that I really enjoyed and um, opened some doors for me. So that's kind of how I, how I started college. And then um, I, I figured that I wanted to go into criminal law. 
I wanted to go to law school and be either a prosecutor or a public defender or, you know, both over time and um, studying criminal law and um, in undergrad, my bachelor's degree is in criminal justice and policing. And I was, yeah. And so I did some practicums during that time period in Oklahoma City, where I worked at a domestic violence shelter and a rape crisis hotline. And um, it was incredibly impactful on me. And at that time, I had been looking at it from a, a criminal justice perspective, but it really kind of opened my eyes to the ways in which we can assist um, clients in all kinds of situations, right? So um, after I graduated, I thought I moved to Kansas City um, to um, be with my fiance then, right? <laughs> and um, got a job, my very first job out of college at the Jackson County Children's Division, working in foster care case management um, as a 23-year-old from Oklahoma, um, working in the urban core in Kansas City and thought, you know, this is something I'm gonna do for a year while I study for the LSAT and then go into law school. Like I thought that this was just um, a, a moment, right? And I absolutely fell in love with social work and found that, you know, at the core of why I wanted to go to law school and work in criminal law was to, um, achieve justice for clients um, and also to, um, you know, help curb violent crime. And once I got to the crux of, of why I wanted to go to law school, I realized that I found all of that and more in direct social work mm. practice. And so I decided to go to grad school for social work wow. and I had never looked back. Um, and so, you know, while at the children's division, I worked in basically every every program line that you can from investigations to quality assurance um, to, and I ended my career there as an adoption specialist. Um, and so that was, you really get to, Jackson County I think is, is really um, special in that it really represents all walks of life. We've got rural areas, we've got suburban and we've got urban areas and we've got you know, clients from literally all walks of life, which I think gave me some really unique perspectives that clearly I've carried into my current job, right? Yeah. Um, but going to grad school um, at KU gave me some really, really amazing experiences, particularly through my practicums, like Susan said, um, things that I would have never experienced. My first practicum was actually at Truman Behavioral um, in the old behavioral health emergency department, as well as, uh, as well as the, you know, the, the long-term, um, one of the long-term units. And so I got to do a lot of mental status exams and, um, work on, you know, short-term treatment plans and get people set up for discharge planning and, um, got to see things that I would have never seen in that old behead, to be really honest with you, um, those experiences, um, and you know, it's 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 funny looking back because when you're working in a really fast-paced environment like that, and trauma is so a part of everything that happens, um, you know, you really kind of normalize it. And then when you leave, you're like, oh wow, that happened. Oh, what? Wait, what? Um, and so. 
I've had a lot of moments like that over the years, just remembering both my work at the Children's Division and Truman specifically, um, but fell in love like Susan with, with mental health, with mental health care, and particularly like Susan with um, severe persistent mental illness, um, but couldn't get away um, from my love of trauma as well and working with clients in that capacity. And so my, my second practicum at KU was over at um, De La Salle, which is an alternative charter school over at 39th and Troost. And I'd never worked in a school setting before you know, I obviously I worked at kids through my work at the children's division, but I'd never worked um, in an education capacity. And so that really opened a lot of doors as well. Um, it was my first time to do um, really individual therapy. Um, I also got a chance to do couples therapy um, and group therapy, um, crisis management, a lot of crisis management. I had, um, unfortunately, I had two students die the year that I worked there. And that was something that I had never experienced in any of my, so in any of my practice. And so that was um, eye-opening and it was incredibly impactful, but my, you know, my work there was so important in that, you know, I got to help first time, um, you know, the first generation of high school graduates apply to college and I got to help them fill in those blanks. And that's something that I'll absolutely never forget. Um, after that, I went, I went back to the children's division because I, I just can't quit them. Yeah. And, um, I just, um, kind of a, kind of a glutton for that kind of work. I just, I'm really, just really passionate about child welfare yeah. and, um, would have probably stayed there, maybe done. I was looking into doing um, getting my clinical licensure and going under supervision about the same time that the 2016 election happened, mm -hmm. um, where I had, was on maternity leave. My, my daughter, who's now four, um, was, was born in September of 2016. So I was right there and completely unprepared. And it, that was another thing that absolutely changed, um, the trajectory of my entire life. Um, I, politics aside, it was something that I felt that I couldn't um, sit on the sidelines anymore, that I was continuing, you know, I was, every day I was fighting for um, access to services for my clients and better outcomes. And then I was looking at, you know, what was happening on the macro level and how policies at the state level were negatively impacting the, 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 the populations that I was trying to serve. Um, and I was furious. And so I let that anger and um, grief propel me into um, politics, which um, I always, even now when people um, ask me what I do, I say I'm a social worker, mm -hmm. but I'm temporarily a politician. So um, I look at what I'm doing as macro level um, social work, as awesome. I think probably most people can attest to what I always harp on either in committee or on the floor. Um, I will always identify first as a social worker. So it's been a, a really weird journey for me. Um, but I'm just kind of going where life leads me, I guess, and just trying to help as many people as I can along the way. So it sounds like what really propelled you into politics was your practice of social work. And um, maybe th there wasn't one aha moment for you, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it was more of a series of events, both at a micro and macro level, 
that propelled you into it? Into social work, I would say that it was, it was my experiences at the children's division, for sure. Um, as far as politics goes, it was absolutely um, the election of Donald Trump, which I, um, I, I, I felt absolutely propelled into politics at that point, which was something that I had never considered yeah. at all. Um, in fact, I tried to talk my husband into running instead of me. <laughs> and which is which is kind of funny if you know my husband uh, <laughs> right. but uh he he was like dude it's it's you like let's do this like it you can do this let's do it nomination and i nominate you yes <laughs> exactly right season for you was it was it one moment that you decided okay i'm a, I'm a politician now i'm getting into politics was it a series of events i i mean i remember you pulling me aside and saying there's this crazy lady over here on the Kansas side that wants me to run, but kind of just to fill a spot. And I don't know if I want to do it. What, you know, what, what propelled you? <clears throat> um, like Carrie, it was Donald Trump's election and, and hearing the, uh, the most vile things that came out of that man's mouth, um, especially when he spoke about Mexicans and blacks and, and, you know, just, you know, though his whole connection to white supremacy, and I think you know we're going to see more and more how how and how deep he is within uh, white supremacy and, and racism. And so I think more and more that's going to come out. But that that was one of the things, you know. And and I know Aaron remembers. And you know, when after the election, we were all numb. You know, I went to work and we were numb. And didn't know how to how to react and and then and then anger came in and and then I was angry all the time I was just just seething in and just being just pissed off that he was elected and how could anybody elect such a such a uh, such a, a devious individual um, and just again you know the voice in my, my dad's voice in my head about you know, you've got the ability to make some changes here. And, and, and knowing that um, there was an opportunity that presented itself to me that there was there, there was a, uh, a, a woman who was running uh, for reelection. And uh, she's a Republican, uh, but but consider more of a moderate Republican, and actually voted a lot with Democrats, uh, but not not always in the um, during the times where we really needed her to vote with the Democrats. Um, anyway, the, it, it just presented itself. I was already involved in local politics and and helping other candidates run for other levels of, of government in our in our city in Shawnee where I live. And uh, so anyway, I was approached and um, you know we talked about what would what would it mean. And so one of the conversations uh, that that um, that that I had to have not just um, with the people that approached me uh, about considering to run was was to look at the diversity they would get with me. And one is that I'm gay, I'm a lesbian, and um, and that I'm a Latina. And um, so I kind of checked off some boxes, and. Uh, and so the thought of that was was uh, was like, 
you know, I could, I could really give my voice out for people who we don't often hear from, and especially not in Johnson County. Right. And, you know, so, you know, and it's, and it's, it's like, okay, you know, my dad used to say, you have to do something with your coraje, with your anger. You, you can't just see then it, that you use your anger to propel you to do to, into action. So that's what I did. And I, and I, I was able to do it. I was, I just, I, um, I, I had to make a, I had to rearrange my life in one sense in order to do it. And then knowing that I, I had to give up working at Truman. I had to give it up. And that was hard. <laughs> it was really hard to do. And I still miss it. Yeah. But we all cried. <laughs> we did. We all cried. I, even helped, I helped like get you out of your job. And yeah, it was you did. You kicked me out. You didn't really like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, you know, having that bigger voice, and I know I'm, I'm sure Carrie can speak to this, that having that bigger voice, heck, brings a lot of burden on at the same time because now all of a sudden you're like you're the social worker that you can talk to everybody now as a social worker and it's it's a it's an awesome blending of the both uh, of being able to speak as a social worker as an advocate um, and and have um, the ability to to influence um, our political system, but it, it influence really what comes out of our of our political offices, and and um, it's it's a it's it's awesome. It's 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 really cool <laughs> to be a a, a representative. Um, people have asked me, "Do you like it?" I went, "Yeah, I really do. I really do like it. I I think it's it's awesome. It's cool to be able to do this, but I also know that it it comes with its responsibilities." I, want, I mean, fast forward, you both won your races, obviously, since you're both representatives. You both have been in office since 2019. Uh, I wonder, for those out there listening, uh, that might be on the fence. You know, I personally believe that the future of social work is macro when, when you think about the profession as a whole. Um, I wonder if you, what skills that you were able to transfer from your micro practice of social work to now your macro practice of social work? I would say um, that communicating um, and empathizing with my colleagues who, you know, have very different lived experiences than me and have very different lived experiences from my constituents and the populations that I've served. Um, and being able to get to the crux of what the differences between us are as far as you know, policy perspectives um, and not demonizing my, my colleagues and realizing that, um, you know, applying that, that strength-based perspective with, with my colleagues, um, try, really, really trying hard not to diagnose them with anything while I'm talking to them. Um, I do keep the DSM-5 in my office, but um, I try not to pull it out on my colleagues, however tempted I am. Um, but I would say that, you know, in, in social work, you, um, it's, it's a person and environment perspective and, and um, looking at people where they are and what they're currently bringing um, is something that I try to do, um, which has allowed me to 
develop relationships with, with people that, uh, you know, politically I'm diametrically opposed to. And so, especially with how contentious and violent our politics have gotten at a national level, I think it's really important to, you know, bring it down to the personal, um, you know, politics is personal, politics is personal, right? And so reminding my colleagues of, you know, the different perspectives that exist and, and why they exist, that it's not, um, it's not some, um, that all Democrats, first of all, aren't, aren't evil, um, that a lot of us are just doing what we can and what we believe to help um, the most vulnerable in our communities. And so I, I think that that's those communication skills and, and um, have helped a lot. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing other than my knowledge of particularly child welfare, right? Um, that I've used um, in, some, in some success actually in the state house and explaining, um, you know, helping all of the ad advocates who come to the Capitol, helping them explain the intricacies of child welfare policy to my colleagues, I think have probably been the biggest, mm -hmm. biggest ways I've used social work. But it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, be, I do look at this as macro level social work, but I also look at it as, you know, you can, you can take the girl out of a social work setting, but you can't take social work out of the girl. Right. So I'm, you know, I will always identify first as a social worker. Has, uh, before we move on, uh, before Susan has a chance to answer my question that I already asked, uh, but Carrie, I wonder if, if being a politician has affected the way you view yourself as a social worker, has it, has your identity as a politician impacted uh, your identity as a social worker? I'm sure it has. Um, I think that social workers helped ground me though, too, mm -hmm. in a way that maybe isn't the case for all of my colleagues. Yeah. Um, I know that this is, my eyes are on that this is temporary that I'm here, um, you know, both literally and figuratively. It's, you know, we have term limits in the state of Missouri. So the most I'm gonna serve in the house is eight years if my constituents choose to reelect me. And so, but I'm also looking at it as, a, as, you know, I need to do as much good as I can in the time that I'm here. And I try, I'm, I'm really cognizant of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny the way people interact with quote unquote politicians and, you know, put them on a, on a pedestal and, and all of that. And, you know, it, it goes to a lot of people's heads. They yeah. get stars in their eyes and start plotting out their, their political journey up the ladder um, pretty quickly once they enter the building. And um, I think that this has probably made me, you know, my, my social work background has made me more grounded mm -hmm. and that I do view this as, this is what I'm doing in social work right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, that's what I'm gonna be doing in social work in, you know, eight years. So I think that, that that's probably affected that. Well, that's the great thing about social work is that it is so diverse. I mean, we've already, <laughs> Both of you talk about such a diversity of experience. Um, Susan, using your micro experience, how did you transfer that to macro level practice? Oh, in in Kansas, and I don't know if this is true for Carrie in, in Missouri, you're 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 asked what committees you want to be on. And so of course, you know, I'm gonna I wanted to focus on committees that deal more with social services and, and 
in 2018, I, I was on the Veterans and Military Committee, the Social Services Budget Committee, and, and the Children and, Sir, Children and Seniors Committee. And um, this time, I really wanted to be on the Health and Human Services Committee. And uh, I was given it because I got reelected and, <laughs> and uh, there was an opening, so I, I was able to, to get in there. So I, I'm still on the ranking minority on for uh, the uh, veterans and military, and I'm on the Health and Human Services, and I'm also on the Social Services Budget Committee. And I think one of the roles that, that I played that I have embraced, and I have been encouraged to continue to do so, even from Republicans, um, that um, my background in social work comes in handy when asking questions. So if we're looking at, like in the Social Services Budget Committee, if, if you know, we, we are listening to organizations that come to us and say, you know, in the governor's budget, there is this amount of money that, it, that we are asking for. Well, we're asking for more. And this is why we are asking it. And, and I can, you know, especially when it comes to the community mental health centers who were, when we had Governor Brown back, <clears throat> he took 10 million away from the community mental health centers and almost shut them down and told them that before he was even elected. Wow. And they've never been able to recoup that kind of funding. And so they're, they're always behind. Johnson County alone, the Community Mental Health Center here in, in Johnson County, they easily provide between probably three to seven million of, of unreimbursable services a year. That's a lot of money. And, and, and all the other community mental health centers are, are in the same boat. So I am able to ask questions like, um, who reimburses your services for case management? Well, Medicaid is the only thing that reimburses for case management. We're also trying to uh, pass Medicaid expansion in Kansas and getting lots of resistance for that. So when I ask about who pays for your services for case management for, for adults with severe mental illnesses, who pay, you know, what does your health insurance pay for it? And they, of course they come back, they, and they know, I know, but, the committee doesn't know, you know, they're, they're not aware that Medicaid is the only thing that pays for a community for uh, case management. So then they become aware of that. And so then of course I have to say, oh, then, uh, then what would your revenue look like if we pass Medicaid expansion? So I have to throw that in there because we're constantly having to harp on the fact that we have up to 150,000 Kansans without insurance who could be eligible for Medicaid expansion. So it's always kind of thinking three steps ahead of people. And, and Carrie can attest to this, that most of the, of the people that are elected into office or who are running for office are white males who are, there may be lawyers, uh, they, they might be a physician, we have a couple of physicians, um, but the rest of them in Kansas, they own other small businesses. And a lot of them are in the rural areas of Kansas. They're, they're farmers, they're ranchers, you know, they're into corporate uh, farming. And they only know that. They know nothing about the impact of social services and, and, and just on that, almost on that human level, how, how just being able to bring down 
our food sales tax, even by 1%, what that would mean for people who are working two or three jobs and trying to make ends meet and, and you know, keeping their kids fill, uh, fed, you know, and so <clears throat> that's what I can do. I, I ask those kinds of questions that nobody else can think of, because they're only thinking about the bottom line and not thinking about how the, how the, um, what we do, the decisions we make, how it impacts just your average citizen yeah. in the state. And, and so that that is part of what I do. I embrace that. I love doing that. Um, and I, I, think, I, I think it's made a difference with how we've been able to look at budgets. And I think I've been able to, to change some people's minds about how they look at social services rather than coming in and only wanting to just slash funding everywhere. Yeah. Look at this is this is how you're going to impact the individual or or even a child, you know, not just families, so <clears throat> or adults, you know. So, I that's I think that's what the main thing that that I bring, and and so all of my experience as a social worker has come in handy, and I talk about it all the time. We we just did a horrible thing on Friday. We, um, I did not, but the majority in our in our in our Kansas legislature. Um, voted to uh, amend or bring to the voters in 22 and the, during the primary the ability to amend our state our constitution our state constitution to take away the rights of women to abortion to reproductive rights um, we could not we we didn't those of us who are against that we were outnumbered um, and so we weren't able to block that like we did two years ago um, and so you have an opportunity after you vote, you have an opportunity to go to the well and to talk to the entire body to say, this is why I voted the way I did. And so all, uh, there were numerous women that lined up and we were all going up and saying, but I spoke from the fact that I am a clinical social worker mm. and that I must uphold human rights. And that doesn't mean just men, oh. means every <laughs> women's rights too. Um, so I can come across that way. They're used to me, you know, using that. And I, you know, I, I use it to my advantage when I can in, in educating people, you know, that, that have, they're put it on, they're put on these committees because they, they want them to block all kinds of bills, you know, and I, I don't, I don't let them get away with it. Good. I think that you know earlier we, that speaks to the weight of what we talked about earlier. Uh, you kind of carry this burden of all these people's voices that you've ever served as a social worker, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of practice you're in, you carry that weight of all these different people's voices. And so I think it's, I mean, it's just incredible that both of you are are carrying the weight of uh, the voices of the people that you've served in the past and using that to impact policy at both of your state's levels. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I just I want to ask, you know, why should other social workers run for office? And what is the best advice you can give them as they do that? Oh, wow. Um, I would say run. Run, 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 run. Don't, don't wait to be asked. Don't question your expertise in something or whether you're good enough or smart enough because I'm telling you that most of the people in there have never stopped for a second to ask those questions of themselves. 
and you are gonna you are gonna go in there and you are going to be an advocate and you are going to be an expert in so many different areas. Um, you know, one of the things that they say, particularly about people who identify as as female for um, in running for office, is that they require to be asked numerous times before they commit to running. Um, whereas generally people who identify as male, that that's not a burden that they, that they have. Um, they go in completely, um, completely on their own volition. And I, the, the amount of confidence, the amount of confidence about things that, um, they are not experts in is rather astounding. Um, and so, um, I, I promise you, if you're elected, you will be one of, if not the smartest person in several rooms you sit in. Um, and you will definitely have expertise and experience in doing the most important work that you can in any kind of political setting, which is advocacy. And um, it's don't, don't wait to be asked just do it. We've got to, we've, you know, social workers have such a unique perspective because we work with so many populations, because it's our job to, um, to advocate for, you know, the autonomy and the best interests of our clients all the time that we are, we are uniquely, um, capable of, of looking at legislation. And, and our first thought is how is this going to affect the most vulnerable in our population or, you know, in society. And that is not, a common perspective that's brought to the political process and it absolutely should be so don't don't walk run run for office <laughs> and be confident because you're smarter yes. than other people. well you know and just like just like when you start um i i remember in grad school um my practice professor talking about imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and how common that is for social workers because we don't have a, um, you know, a tangible set of skills. We have, you know, a uniquely, a, a very unique set of skills, but it's not necessarily like a tangible work product so much as it is, you know, something that's happening intrinsically and, you know, inside of our clients, right? And so I think it's, that can be applied to, to politics as well. It's a fake it till you make it situation. And, and just, yeah. And so just, you know, go out there with, with all of the confidence of all the other, you know, of all of your colleagues um, that, that don't share that, that imposter syndrome. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Susan, why should they run and what advice would you give them? Um, ditto to everything that just that Carrie just said. That is, she hit it on the on the the nail there. Um, um, you know, uh, one of the things I love about social work is is the fact that social work is both a science and an art, mm -hmm. and it's the art part of it that we really get to exercise. I, in my opinion, um, in as being being in politics. You could read people so quickly. You know, we're, we're, we're taught that, we're trained that, we have experience in that. You build rapport very quickly. Um, and so you, you bring those same skills with you. You know, if you're trying to pass a bill, you need to have a coalition. And so we know how to do that. We know how to build coalitions. 
you know, we know how to bring people together to try to compromise or to look at something that we're both interested in and then let's pursue that. Um, and so that's that art piece of it. We can read people. We can read people to the point of we know when you're, when you, you know, it's BS that's being thrown your way. Yeah. You know, you know it, you can read it, you know, right away, you can smell it, you know? Yeah. And so you know how to get around that. Um, and, you know, you, you know, we have this, I don't, you know, again, it's that art part of it. it yeah. It's, it's almost like a, we almost like we develop almost like a sixth sense and we can, we can, you know, see that coming right away and you can dodge it and right. get around it, you know, and then like, you know, dude, I, I know what you're, I know what you're about. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can, I, I can stand up to all kinds of folks, but um, it's, it is really that, that part of it. And, and Carrie is right. Women, and there's re plenty of research to back that, that women, seem to uh, to um, make decisions about going into or you know going you know running for any kind of office you know it doesn't matter what level of office requires somebody to ask them several times you know like seven times or, or something like that it, it takes a lot um, in and I, I think um, and I don't know if Carrie feels the same way but I I feel that it's also uh, my job to encourage other people, you know, to run for office. And uh, I'm not going to be in office forever. Somebody needs to be in the wings. We need to be getting people trained and ready to, you know, to be able to to come up and and, and run for all these different office levels. We need social workers everywhere. We need them on city councils. We need them in city county commissioners. We need them everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and so being able to encourage another person to run, um, I I ask people to come, you know, come and talk to me, and call me, send me an email, send me a text saying I'd like to just pick your brain about this. I I love doing that, and especially younger people that are just kind of thinking about it now because it's going to take a couple of years really to, to really get geared up to actually run for whatever office you're wanting to run for. And, and, and it takes a lot to do that. And, and, and knowing that there's people out there, there's, there's, there's lots of us out here that are willing to help uh, folks trying to make that decision. I, you know, I want to encourage more, we need to encourage more diversity. And, and, uh, you know, again, because it brings it, you know, then our legislators start looking like what our population really looks like in our individual states. Um, there's a really good book if anybody, if they're interested in trying to, to get it, it's called Political Social Work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Political Social Work, Using Power to Create Social Change. Mm -hmm. And it's like Political Social Work 101 kind of a book, mm -hmm. but it's a really well put together book. And it's one of the only ones that's out there. And it's by the authors, uh, Shannon Lane and Suzanne Pritzker. Um, it's a really good book. And um, another social worker and I were going to, uh, actually we were all, we accepted, we submitted a, a, a proposal to do that for the, for the last national NASW convention. And we were gonna do this workshop on it, uh, but 
because pandemic that never worked out. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that someday we can do that. Mary Carrie and I can do it together. We can uh, do something like that. So, um, but it's 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 um, you know, and Carrie was kind of alluding to this. You know where you know where men think that they belong there. You know, at, I don't know if that's. I don't know where it comes from, but just men think about it, you know, whereas women have to think it over and over and over. We have, if it means convincing yourself that we have a right to be there, women have a right to be at that table. And if we're not, then our voice is lost. It's not heard. And when you're not visible, <laughs> nobody thinks about you. Right. right. You know, so you're just, you're just not there because nobody thinks about you. So we need to be there. We need to be there. Our voices need to be there. We need to be visible. And and um, and uh, it's it, it's been amazing to me um, how actually how easy it has been to translate my social work skills in, into the political arena. It's um, and and that was part of what I wanted to do at at, at a conference is and to talk talked about how are, are just our basic social work skills translate so well into running for any level of elected office. And um, yeah, we just, we just, we have to be there. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's an important uh, point to make too about uh, the difference between how men view their role in office and how women view their uh, role in office, especially coming from a field that is uh, predominantly uh, female um, we're really minimizing social work's voice if we don't take that step and realize that social work voice, voices are important and vital to the functioning of our, uh, of our democracy. Um, and I'll make sure to put that book, uh, a link to that book uh, in the show notes that go out with the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading that. I haven't heard, heard of that. So thank you for sharing yeah. that resource. That's all I have for this segment. Uh, so Thank you so much to Representatives Ruiz and Ingle for joining us for this podcast. I know that Heather and Jessica, I think, are going to give us an update on stuff happening at the State House. So, um, Susan and Carrie, feel free to stay on if you want to listen. Uh, but I'm going to put myself on on mute and step away from my computer for just a second while you guys. Great. Thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, this is Heather Bradley-Geary. I'm the NASW Missouri president. Uh, thank you, Carrie and Susan, so much for your time this morning and all of your work in both of the state houses. We appreciate your work. And um, I just loved everything you said. I had goosebumps several times at both of your words. So thank you so much. Um, so to end our segment today, we wanted to introduce Jessica uh, Petrie, and she's with the Winston Group, which is our lobbyist group at NASW Missouri. And they, uh, we have an advocacy committee that works directly with Jessica and her team on following bills and she keeps us updated regularly. I did wanna get in and I'm sure Jessica reiterated at the end, um, but we do have a monthly Zoom meeting for all NASW Missouri members to log into um, where Jessica gives us an update on what we're following, where bills stand, um, if there's opportunities to testify. 
Um, I'm sure Susan and Carrie can both tell you that it's important as social workers that we are also testifying on bills and having our voice heard. Um, so I'm gonna, we're gonna end today just with Jessica, give us an update, introducing herself first, of course, and then giving an update on what, what bills we're tracking that would be really important to all of us and, and where we stand. So Jessica, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on and, and thank you both. That was a really, a really interesting discussion to listen in on. Um, so like Heather said, my name is Jessica Petrie. I work at Winton Policy Group as a lobbyist and our team has the pleasure of being NASW's uh, basically hands and feet in the Capitol, uh, monitoring bills, testifying in committee, educating legislators. Um, so NASW's internal advocacy team um, gives us direction on what bills they want to prioritize based on their impact on the social work profession and their alignment with social work values. Um, and then we take that um, information to the Capitol and, of course, communicate um, as much as we can. And so I do want to put in a plug for the monthly Zoom calls. We're really excited about that. Um, and as, as you all know from your personal and professional experience, Social workers touch so many different policy areas from behavioral health to child welfare, to senior services, to equity, to a, a range of issues. And so of course, we're not gonna be able to touch on all those pieces of legislation on every call. Um, that would be like a 23 hour affair. But we do, um, we will highlight what's moving um, what, what has a chance of passage? What do we need to be concerned about that directly relates to the social work profession and the social work value? So you'll be getting emails about that. And I just really want to put in a shameless plug about that. Um, my second shameless plug is for NASW's Advocacy Day. Um, NASW generally does a legislative education and advocacy day during session um, in a normal year. Uh, which I don't know when we're going to have one of those again, it would be in person in the building. Um, but this year we're going to try something new and we're going to do it virtually in small groups um, where people will be meeting with their area legislators over Zoom in small groups. And so we're really excited about that. Um, not only is it a good chance to talk about some bills that are really important to NASW, but it's also an opportunity to create, if, if you don't have a relationship with your local representative or senator, we always encourage that. It's just a good first step of advocacy. Build a relationship with them before you need them. Um, and so this can be a springboard for future conversations with, with your delegation. So that being said, I will be very brief. Uh, which is a struggle for me, but I do think I can do, um, and give you a little high-level overview of where we're at in the session and some of the big buckets of bills that NASW is watching. And if, if these spark your interest and you think, ah, I want to follow the fate of that, tune into our monthly calls. Shameless plug number three. Um, so our legislative session started on January 6th um, and is set to run until May 14th. Um, as you can imagine, one of the big questions overhanging this entire session is what's going to happen with COVID and how is that going to impact our ability to move legislation? Um, going into this, most of the lobbying corps assumed we would lose probably a third of our session time. And so there's um, a lot of interest in getting things moving quickly. 
Um, so we're about in our third week of session. We already have 1,300 bills filed. So we really are off to the races. Um, the House was out of session last week because of COVID cases, um, but both, session, both chambers are in this week, um, even though we, we know we have at least one confirmed case in the Senate, um, but we're, we're still going. Um, and what's really created an interesting dynamic is, so last week, the Senate committees really hit the ground running with some really controversial pieces of language. Um, one of the staffers I talked to jokingly called it controversial issue bingo, which I thought was just a really good descriptor. Um, we had um, school choice provisions, um, a Second Amendment Preservation Act, local public health legislation, um, COVID-19 liability for healthcare providers, business premises and manufacturers. So a lot of really hefty issues heard in committee all in one week um, because we are off to this push of, you know, we've got to move things because we don't know if and when there will be a shutdown. So I think all of our, our talk about timing has to come with a major caveat that we're all living in, in a lot of uncertainty. Um, one really important date this week is Wednesday, which is when Governor Mike Parson is scheduled to give his State of the State address at 3 p.m. Um, if you want to listen live to that, he will lay out, you know, his vision and priorities for the state. But most significant is that's the day that we get information on his recommendations for the next fiscal year's budget. Um, and as you all can probably intuit from just managing household finances, putting laws on the book without money behind them doesn't really do a lot. Uh, we in Missouri have statutes that have been on the books for decades that are kind of meaningless because there's no funding behind them. So we talk about the budget a lot as a, a document of priorities, right? This is the state saying these are the most important things because we are not only going to put some words on a page, which is of course important, but we're also going to put some funding behind the implementation. And so in the state of the state address, um, in conjunction with that, we will get a look at the governor's fiscal year 2022 budget recommendations. And that will kickstart the budget process in the House of Representatives, and then it'll move to the Senate, tune in for our monthly updates for more budget talk. Um, but this is, this is really important. Um, for almost every program that we care about, be it Medicaid, be it foster care resources, the budget matters. So that's a really big thing on our agenda this week. And to just touch kind of high level on issues that NASW is watching this year, the first issue that we're keeping an eye on is police reform. So over the summer, um, the legislature had a maybe seven week long special session on violent crime. Um, and one of the critiques of that is that it really didn't address the underlying causes of um, a lot of the, the crime issues that our state faces and gun violence issues. Um, but one positive thing that that session did spark was some productive conversations between Senator Brian Williams, who's a Democrat member from St. Louis, and the Republican chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and Senator Luke Tamayer, who's a Republican, has said you know, that he's excited about working with Senator Williams to see where they can find common ground 
on policing and violent crime issues. And so this week, Senator Williams is having his police reform package heard in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is awesome that this is one of the first bills um, that's going to be heard. And it is a really comprehensive package dealing with um, the use of lethal force, chokeholds, no-knock warrants, um, sexual activity while on duty for law enforcement officers, and a host of other issues. So this is something that NASW is marked as a high priority and we'll be um, supporting in committee. Um, of course, that comprehensive bill, this ideal vision of police reform from Senator Williams, his vision for police reform, is not going to pass as it's filed, but it's really good to start the conversation. And it's really good that we have some commitment to working in a bipartisan fashion to figure out, can we put something together where all sides of this issue are getting something that they want? Um, so we'll, we'll keep a very close eye on that issue moving forward. The second thing we want to highlight is around child welfare and child care. And Representative Engel is, of course, our resident expert on this issue, both on this call and in the legislature, uh, which is awesome to have a social worker in this space. But one of the things to watch for in the governor's state of the state is an announcement about early childhood and early learning. Um, the state has already taken some steps toward consolidating and strengthening our internal State Department infrastructure to work on early childhood issues. Um, and that would encompass things like preschool and childcare, but also home visitation, kind of the, the suite of zero to five services. Um, and so DESE already launched an Office of Early Learning um, to try to consolidate those programs internally, which is a really awesome first step. And the governor has been talking about the importance of preschool and childcare at a variety of public events. Um, and you know, his big priorities are workforce development and infrastructure. And uh, the first year he was in office, it was like a game where every lobbyist was like, well, our bill has to be either workforce development or infrastructure. We don't care what it is. Anything can be workforce development and infrastructure. Um, but childcare really is both of those things. I mean, it is, um, it's not only a short-term workforce development issue because uh, parents and guardians can't go to work unless they have a safe place for their children, but it's also a long-term workforce development issue because this is the next generation of Missouri's economy. And so the governor's really been highlighting that and has said that more is to come at his state of the state address. Um, you know, any, any change the state tries to make is of course gonna come with logistical and implementation hurdles. Um, we, we all recognize that, but having the conversation and elevating the importance of these issues and viewing them from not only a, a human good lens, but an economic development and a workforce development lens is something that's really positive. Um, also in the child welfare space, some of the first bills moving in the House of Representatives um, are one is a tax credit uh, or a tax deduction for foster family expenses. And the second is expanding the special needs adoption tax credit um, to any adoptions. And these are because um, foster care and adoption specifically have been identified as top priorities for our House Speaker, Rob Vescovo, who himself, and, and he talked about this in his opening address to the House, he was adopted out of foster care. And so these are really personally important issues to him. And so those are our first bills out of committee in the House. 
and something that of course we're gonna keep an eye on. And the second big child welfare issue that we're watching is, is actually one of the bills is sponsored by Representative Engel. Um, we have a religious exemption loophole in Missouri's law for um, oversight of residential facilities. And if, if you've been looking at the news, there have been just some really horrific stories of abuse coming out of Missouri and facilities get kicked out of a state and they come to Missouri because there's no oversight. And so we'll definitely be monitoring those legislative attempts to put some sort of framework and, and standards in place. Um, healthcare is, of course, another bucket that we pay really close attention to. Uh, we talked a little bit about Medicaid expansion earlier on this podcast, and Missouri did pass Medicaid expansion on the ballot in August. And the state plan amendment is due to the federal government on March 1st, which with implementation scheduled for um, July 1st of 2021. And so funding is of course something that we're gonna watch very closely in the budget process, but also any legislative responses to Medicaid expansion because um, we, we've seen perennial things like Medicaid work requirements filed again as a, a cost containment approach to responding to expansion. But we've also seen some fairly punitive measures like capping hospital reimbursement at 50% of Medicare um, as a, a Medicaid reform measure. And so that's something that of course we keep a very close eye on um, because that impacts our, our entire healthcare ecosystem. And then in response to COVID-19, we have a host of bills that are filed to restrict or modify local public health departments' ability to promulgate orders. And these really run the gamut from um, protections for religious services to requiring county commission or local governing body approval in order for orders to take effect, all the way to legislation that would just basically strip from the statute county health board's ability to promulgate orders. So seven of those bills were heard last week in the Senate and six more are going to be heard in the House on Tuesday. Um, so that's definitely one of the most high profile and controversial issues that we're watching and something that we um, just have no doubt will take up a lot of time and oxygen in the legislature this year. And I, I could go on and on for much more than the minute that I have left. Really, we all have left, so sorry, guys. Um, but I, I hope that's a helpful overview of the types of bills that NASW cares about and, and the work that we're doing in the Capitol. So join us for the monthly updates. And thank you again for your time and, and letting me share a little with you. Thank you so much, Jessica, for the update. And again, uh, please tune in to our monthly legislative update from Jessica and then Advocacy Day, which is just around the corner. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Missouri Speaks Social Work, a podcast of the Missouri chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. You can learn more about us at naswmo.socialworkers.org. And please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you are listening to this current episode so that you won't miss any in the future. And until next time, keep speaking social work, Missouri.